Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of a couple cans of beans, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. Also, wanted to mention, if you're concerned about having to go back and forth from Patreon to your regular podcast app, we have set up a special RSS feed that you can load right into your regular podcast app. So then you get all of your favorite podcasts in one spot. So you'd get all of our bonus episodes and our regular episodes all in your regular podcast app. Please join our Patreon, support our show. You get twice as much content. It's a great time. We'd love to see you over there. So if that was what was holding you back from Patreon, we've solved that problem now. So you can go right ahead and subscribe. This week in engineering news, an update on Florida's condo legislation. You'll remember back in episode 27 and 28, which was last June, right after the Champlain Towers collapsed in Surfside, Florida, we talked about the collapse in our engineering news for the first, uh, for two episodes, which were also Brian's first two episodes, so that was exciting. Now this article comes from mid-March, so it's a couple months old, but still I think really interesting, and it keeps in our theme of this episode, which is Florida, because our failure is also in Florida. As you know from the Champlain Towers, and I think the investigation is still ongoing, I don't I don't know that a formal report has been released. The speculation is fairly certain on what the cause was, but I, I don't know if the formal report's been out yet. If someone does, please send it to me, because I do want to cover that on a future episode. But essentially, the the condo had an engineering uh, an engineering review done in 2018, and there were some significant issues that were flagged in that report and the condo board didn't act on them. I think there's a combination of things going on there myself. Uh, I think there's the the cost factor. I believe those repairs were somewhere in the realm of $15 million, which is a huge cost. And they didn't have a reserve fund or at least one nowhere near large enough to, to cover this. So you're looking at, you know, dividing $15 million and doing a special assessment to each of the condo owners in the building that's a that's a really big, big mountain to climb. And then I think additionally, I'm not sure how well the condo board understood the implications of the report. And that's not to say that they can't read and understand the report. And that's not to say that the engineer didn't try to explain it to them. But it is a somewhat complex topic if it's not your day-to-day job to really fully understand and grasp what is going on and what the issues are. And so... You know, of course, this collapse is tragic and it was completely preventable. Was there an obligation in Florida for them to have a reserve fund or a reserve fund study at all? No. So that's what this legislation was trying to fix. So the Florida Senate and the House of Representatives, they were trying to get a bill through that would require inspections of aging condo buildings and then also mandate that condo boards have reserve fund studies done and build a reserve fund based on those studies and what they say you should put away. So I live in a condo. We get a reserve fund study done. I should know this. It's probably every five years. And we put away money based on what repairs we expect to have. And let's say it says we need a new roof in 2022. And we find we don't need a new roof in 2022. But we've already saved for it. So it's fine. And we're prepared for next time. That's the whole point of reserve funds is so that when something does go wrong, it's not a huge special assessment. The money's already there. Again, here I, I also live in a condo. Every five years, there is a reserve fund study that's supposed to be done to cover things that will need to be replaced over the life cycle of the condo. 
things like roofs or windows or elevator repairs. I mean, it's the same thing if, if you want a house, you're just putting away money for water heater repairs or needing to replace the windows. Um, and since everyone lives in a condo and it's a lot of common property, everyone needs to contribute to that. Yeah, and and we get it. It's a balance. You can't just say condo boards need to do these all of these things, but you also can't let them have full free reign because some of them are not as responsible as others and there's a balance and and admittedly i don't know exactly where that sweet spot is you know you do want to give condo owners some flexibility in how they set their fees and how they manage their buildings but you also have to protect people from themselves that's a big part of my job i find is protecting people from themselves and pointing out when some of the things they want to do are a bad idea Um, and you know that's how a lot of codes happen that's how a lot of standards are developed, is about things going wrong. I mean, look at all the failures we've talked about on the show. Not to mention, you know, everyone hates special assessments. I also wanted to mention, so the Miami Herald has a fantastic and interactive summary on the Champlain Tower collapse. It has video and photos, audio clips, drawings, as well as written explanations. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out. I highly recommend it. It's really, really well done and really informative. If you want to read more about the Florida legislation bill that didn't get passed and more information on that, check out the links to the sources on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. Roberta Luongo's Bingo Bango Bingo Hall. If you've had a bad day, come dab your troubles away. Try it on for size. You could even win a prize. Don't let this beach ball of an opportunity pass you by. Find a Roberto Luongo's Bingo Bango Bingo Hall near you. Now, on to this week's engineering failure, the Florida Pedestrian Bridge Collapse. The bridge is located on a Florida University campus, and it's used to connect student housing neighborhoods in Sweetwater, Florida, to the campus and University Park in Miami, and across the Tamiami Trail and Tamiami Canal. So the intersection at this location was identified as a hazardous location. Uh, One student was actually killed here at this intersection um, a number of years before by a vehicle. So it was decided that they would build a pedestrian bridge to connect the university campus and student housing, which which to me seems like a great idea, especially if you have a vehicular fatality. So the bridge design was overseen by the university, not the Florida Department of Transportation, and FIU was known for its accelerated bridge construction, and it did attract PhD students from around the world for industry conferences and seminars. The National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB that we've talked about a number of times on this show, found that FIU had no professional engineers on staff for this project and relied solely on the expertise of the hired engineers and contractors. Which I feel is not the worst thing. They don't have anyone on staff to deal with this sort of bridge construction, so they've, they're relying on the expertise of, of other engineers that are hired for this project and contractors that have been hired for this project. We, we see this sort of thing a lot in projects that I work on or probably in projects that Nicole works on. Yeah, I would say that's not abnormal for the owner's representative or owner's team to not have the expertise of designing the product that they're hiring people to design. One thing though, just to touch more on what Brian said. So the Florida Department of Transportation is normally the group that would oversee this type of construction. And I would assume based on the contents of the report that they do have that type of expertise on staff looking after their projects and overseeing them. 
in my experience, university campuses, they're kind of like small towns within themselves. And so they do get a lot more freedom and latitude to kind of run themselves and patrol themselves. And so I, I believe that's why uh, Florida University was able to take on this bridge construction uh, independent of Florida Department of Transportation. Looking back, maybe not the the best thing. The other thing to think about too is the university, even if they had the expertise, they're not set up for bridge construction, at least as far as I know. You know, that's a, this isn't what they do for a living. Whereas the Florida Department of Transportation, this is what they do. This is what they know. This is what they're set up for. And so it's one thing to understand the design and it's a whole other thing to do this thing on a regular basis to, such that you understand the ins and outs of how the project flows. And I, and I say that because I've seen project managers who have experience in other types of construction coming into, let's say, wood frame design, for example, which is its own beast, to be honest. If you're not familiar with that type of project in such a way that you can forecast and plan ahead for what problems may arise later, then you're going to run into problems. You don't see the problem until it's in front of you and you're, it's already too late at that point. Yeah, I do think this was interesting. And and I have seen this type of thing with universities before where they're able to kind of self-regulate, I guess, a bit. But I do think it's tricky here that not only are they doing the design, but they were doing a lot of the construction management, which I feel, and, and like you mentioned, it, it's very atypical um, for an approach like this, you know, especially for a university to oversee so many aspects of of a project like this. Yeah, I have a feeling that they teach this type of engineering in their curriculum but and and this is not a knock against teaching or its curriculum it's just it's different teaching how to do something and applying that is different i design plumbing systems for a living i don't know that you want me putting pipe together (laughs) i am not very handy and i do not do well with tools like i don't I understand the theory behind it and I know how to size the pipe and what the material should be made out and all of those things, but I rely on the expertise of the plumber to put it together properly. And that's why we have these skilled trades because they know how to do that and we, we need to work together. So they rely on me when they have questions and they need to change things or they need to resize something because it doesn't fit. And I rely on them to put things together and we work to, we work as a team. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really good system to have in, in modern society is that everyone eventually winds up specializing in something, you know, whether it's, like Nicole said, designing the plumbing, you know, infrastructure and hardware, or whether it's assembling Nicole's designs. Everyone contributes to this project, and, and you can't have a really successful project without, you know, having multiple disciplines that are all really good at their one, you know, or two disciplines working together to build a really cool project. There's lots of things that you know, I can do and there's lots of things that I can't do because I don't know how to build a building or, you know, spec, you know, material or glass for a building, but there's lots of people mm. out there that do know how to do that. So the bridge itself was 98 meters long and it had two spans and a faux cable stayed tower in the middle. So a, it was a fake cable stayed bridge. The bridge in reality was a monotrust bridge with self-supporting spans. This was the first design like it to be used. I don't know if that's in the world, but certainly in Florida and with all of the people that were building it. The thing that I thought was really, really cool about this bridge design, and to be fair, I'm not a fan of testing out new new concepts there. I like tried and true. But the bridge itself is an I-beam, which I thought was really, really cool. So 
And I mean, the whole bridge is an I-beam. The concrete walkway deck that you walk on is the bottom flange of the I-beam. And the roof of the bridge is the top of the I-beam. And then there's diagonal members in between the upper and lower decks. And that makes up what what would normally be the webs of the I-beam. That's actually really cool. It is really cool. really cool. So I think, you know, unfortunately, this bridge did not survive. Had it had it not collapsed, this would have been a really, really cool bridge. And And doing this design not only looks cool and makes us nerd out, but it also allowed the bridge to be lower since the walkway wasn't sitting on top of a structure. So since the bridge itself was the structure and it wasn't sitting on top of structure it could be lower closer to the roadway which meant that they were able to reduce the number of stairs that you had to take to get up and down from the bridge my knees thank them for that the bridge was constructed in three separate concrete pours first they did the deck the bottom of the i-beam then the truss members the vertical members that make up the web and then the canopy on top and there were cold joints at the connection of each pour So when they poured the bottom deck, there'd be rebar sticking out and that would tie into the column rebar and then they would pour the columns and then there would be rebar sticking out of the top of the columns that would tie into the canopy. And what they mean by cold joint is that the, it's not one continuous pour. So they pour, they let the concrete cure and then they pour another layer of concrete on top that would become the column and then same thing for the canopy. It's really, really important to note that the bridge didn't have any redundant members Failure of an individual truss member would result in collapse of the bridge. That doesn't sound like a very good design. It's not the intended design, but it's what they ended up with in reality. The bridge was supposed to have fully redundant members. And due to some issues and mistakes that were made that we're going to talk about, it didn't. The other thing is the bridge was post-tensioned, which, as we've kind of talked about before, always makes for some interesting challenges, specifically on the last episode when we talked about L'Ambiance Plaza and all of the post-tensioning issues that that project had. This one had some different ones, but still, post-tensioning does always add a complexity factor that doesn't always go the right way. And then lastly, the bridge used a new concrete recipe that was said to be self-cleaning. This created a much lighter bridge than would be under conventional methods as well. Yeah, so it sounds like they have a lot of uh, untested things going into this bridge. Um, that unfortunately, some of these do lead to the collapse of this bridge. Um, one thing to note, though, the post-tension specifications, they were different from when they were moving the bridge to when the bridge was going to be in its permanent place. And in fact, there were actually some post-tension cables in this that were only required for transport because the the bridge um, pieces, would the spans of the bridge, were, were cantilevered, so they would stick out a little bit further than their transportation devices. Um, so to counteract this, truss number two and truss number 11 were post-tension for the move. And this bridge was intended to last 100 years and withstand a Category 5 hurricane. So these are fairly long design lives in, in this bridge and standing up to some fairly substantial hurricane forces for, for a Category 5 storm. Construction of the bridge started in March of 2016 and the total cost was 14.2 million US dollars. So the bridge span was in place by 11:30 on March 10th, 2018, so about 2 years after they started. The walkway surface was poured concrete and hardened before the truss braces were poured above it. The truss members were connected to the deck by steel reinforcing rods embedded in the deck and in the concrete of the truss. Following inspection, the okay was given to release those temporary post-tension cables on trusses 2 and 11. So I'm going to pause here for a second. 
there were 12 trusses, which remember are the, those are the vertical members that make up the web of the I-beam that run down the middle of the bridge. So there were 12 of them. So trusses two and 11 were one in from each of the ends. And as you remember Brian mentioning, they had temporary post-tensioning cables installed in them to allow them to move the bridge into place. And so once the bridge was in place and they were happy with where it was, they were given the okay to then release those post-tension cables. And those cables were always intended to be temporary. When they did this, when they released those cables, the bridge, quote unquote, cracked like hell. That's not a sound that you want to want to hear as soon as you take cables away from anything. No, it's not. The cracks were in the area where the walkway contacted the support pier, so where the walkways attached to the piers on either side of the span. And they weren't the only cracks in the bridge, but they were the most concerning. So this is March 10th. On March 13th, the engineer of record was notified of the cracks and began working on a remediation plan. He also contacted the Florida Department of Transportation by voicemail, but that person he left voicemail for was away and they didn't hear the message until the day after the collapse. The engineer, even though he inspected the bridge and looked at all the cracks, he didn't think that the cracks were an immediate issue and they were something that would be dealt with later. So he he recognized that they were significant enough that they had to be dealt with, but not so significant that there was going to be a collapse, which, spoiler alert, he was wrong. Yeah, otherwise we probably wouldn't be talking about it on this show. At 9 a.m. on March 15th, which is the day of the collapse, an employee of FIU heard a loud whip-cracking sound while waiting for a red light sitting under the bridge. So if you are sitting underneath the bridge at a red light and you hear a loud sound from the bridge above you, that is not an ideal spot to be. No, and I'm not sure if we already mentioned it or if we're going to be mentioning it, but the bridge was over six lanes of traffic, I believe, six or eight, and the traffic was open. So people were free to drive under the bridge and at a red light, they would just park under the bridge. A site meeting was scheduled to discuss the remediation plan for March the 15th at 9 a.m. And the engineer of record and another engineer, managers of the engineering firm, and the contractors were present and they used the lift to closer inspect the cracking. The results of the engineering inspection were that the structural integrity of the bridge was not compromised and that there were no safety concerns. Boy, were they wrong on that one. They also didn't want to address the cracks until the post-tension was complete and the bridge was stabilized they also wanted to expedite the construction of the pylon at the north end of the span. The contractor immediately got to work retensioning, but the engineer of record left the site and the post-tension inspector is not available on short notice. So there's all these things that are just leading towards this bridge failing to be a bridge. I had mentioned earlier they released those post-tension cables and then after the engineer came back, they decided to retension them. But... You know, this project has a lot of moving parts and a lot of different parties involved. And so there was an inspector that was dedicated to the post-tensioning procedure. But because it was, I guess, an emergency post-tensioning, you could say, he wasn't available on short notice. And so the contractor just did it. And I I think the bridge failure was imminent at this point. But it, it was unfortunate that the inspector wasn't able to be there. And, and that's not to say that the contractor couldn't do it or didn't know what they were doing. But it's nice to have another set of eyes with someone who's an expert in that area. So still March 15th, the day of the collapse, the same day that the engineer and the teams inspected those cracks, at 1.47 p.m., the 53-meter section of the bridge collapsed, which was the longest section, and that occurred while trusses 2 and 11 were being retensioned. 
At the time of the collapse, six of the eight lanes of traffic below the bridge were open. No requests had been submitted during bridge construction for a full road closure. School was on spring break. The canal span, access ramps, and the faux cable-stayed tower between the two spans had not been built yet. I do want to mention, you know, getting road closures is not the easiest task. It's, it's challenging and it's expensive. At least I understand it's expensive. But when you have this type of potential risk, and I, I realize that they didn't quite understand the risk that they did have, but when you have this type of risk, getting that road closed would have been easy. Easy. That you would have just said, this bridge is at risk of collapse, and you would have had it closed right, like within an hour at least, if not faster. So it's really unfortunate that they didn't do that. The collapse section of the bridge weighed 860 metric tons. Collapse resulted in the death of six people, one worker, and five motorists who were parked under the bridge when it collapsed. There was also 10 injuries and eight crushed vehicles underneath the collapse section. The collapse ultimately initiated at the coal joint between truss members 11 and 12 and the deck of the span. So between the the bottom of the deck, the I-beam, and the two vertical members 11 and 12, which, which were on the north end of the bridge. When the tendon let go, it sheared the rebar in an adjacent vertical member, and the collapse happened over a span of a few seconds. The unsuspecting driver sitting below had no idea what was coming and no opportunity to get out of the way. The National Transportation Safety Board, or DNTSB, initiated an investigation team almost immediately. So the U.S. Department of Labor also conducted an investigation. As a result of these investigations, the responsibility to identify safety issues was on the FIU design build team, and more specifically, the engineer of record. So at no point were there any concerns that were flagged during the design stage or the construction stage. In fact, the voicemail left on March the 13th, which was two days before the collapse, had it been heard, noted that there were some concerns that needed to be addressed, but nothing from a safety perspective. So as Brian mentioned, the National Transportation Safety Board did an investigation and they had a number of findings. So they said the official probable cause was the load and capacity calculation errors made by the bridge engineers in the design of the main span truss members 11 and 12 and their connection to the bridge deck. Contributing to the collapse was the inadequate peer review, which failed to detect these calculation errors or the errors in redundancy. Further contributing was the failure to recognize the significance of the cracking and failure to obtain a peer review of the repairs to the cracks. And lastly, failure on the part of all involved parties to stop bridge work and close the street. They have more findings, but I do want to touch on a few of these things. So it was noted that there was a peer review on the original bridge design, but it wasn't done by someone who was a professional engineer. And then once the engineer recognized that the cracks were a problem and he said he wanted to remediate them, which is when he recommended the retensioning of those cables, that repair wasn't part of a peer review process. So they reviewed the original design, but then they didn't review that pretty significant change to the structure to address the cracks. That wasn't peer reviewed by anybody. That was just the engineer making a decision on his own. And then the last thing that I had mentioned, failure on part of all involved parties to stop bridge work. Yes, the engineer of record is at fault here, unfortunately for him, but there are a significant number of experts on this bridge construction project. Some of them engineers, some of them contractors, some of them from a variety of backgrounds, but they're all knowledgeable in bridge building. And it's often falls back to the engineer to say, oh, it's their responsibility. It's their liability. But we all take part in these projects and we all contribute to building these bridges or buildings or what have you. And it's not just the engineer's responsibility to stop unsafe work. It's all of our responsibility. 
And so I thought that was really interesting that the NTSB flagged that as one of their, their findings. They did have a number of other findings. The concrete and steel materials that were used in the construction were not a factor in the collapse. The hydraulic jack that they used to post tension truss 11 was operating as expected. The bridge design, as I had mentioned before, it was non-redundant. So if any member of the bridge failed, the bridge would collapse. But when the engineers designed it, they used poor judgment and they labeled the bridge a redundant structure and used a redundancy factor of one. So they treated it like a redundant bridge, except it wasn't, and which left it more at risk than if they had called it non-redundant from the start. The bridge engineers also made significant design errors in determining the load and overestimated the effects of the clamping forces, resulting in a significant overestimation of capacity. So they essentially underdesigned some of the members. The area near trusses 11 and 12 contained non-structural voids for the post-tension cable sleeves and a drain pipe, damn those plumbers, which further impacted the capacity in this area. So there was a chunk of essentially void space or, or non-structural space near trust members 11 and 12 that further weakened that area because they didn't have the strength had those those sections been filled in. The rate of premature cracking should have alerted the engineers that there was a significant issue and that the bridge was heading towards failure. You know, hindsight's 2020, but I'd like to think that cracking should raise some pretty big red flags. It always does for me. Even though some cracks are are acceptable and reasonable, I don't like to see them. Yeah, like looking at the pictures of the cracks on this bridge, these are not small cracks. They're fairly significant cracks. Yeah, they are. So we're going to put links to all of the all of our sources, as always, are going to go on our website. As I had mentioned, there were some issues with the initial peer review process. So Florida Department of Transportation actually had requirements for qualified independent peer reviews and then requiring those to be done by a professional engineer, which unfortunately wasn't the case. And then the repairs and retentioning of those members were not subject to the peer review, which I had mentioned. You know, again, the engineer is ultimately responsible and liable for the design of the bridge. But in a case like this, Everybody involved is responsible to some degree. Prior to the collapse of this bridge, the rules in Florida had changed, which would allow pretty much anyone on this project to close the road if there was a safety concern. But no one did because everyone just said, oh, it's the engineer's responsibility. He's going to decide. He takes all the risk. And so we're not going to take action. And I really think that was wrong. I think I I don't want to give the engineer a pass. That's not what I'm doing here. But I think, you know, there's some onus on everybody to have waved a white flag and closed the bridge. Yeah. And, and this is a time, um, you know, it's, it's not the 1950s or the, you know, 1920s where, where safety is kind of super far down the list. And there's only one person on site that can make a safety recommendation or, you know, point something out if there's something wrong. Like, this is in 2018. So it's it's very recent. It's very modern in terms of empowering workers on site to identify and correct safety issues that are there. So yeah, this is something that lots of people on site probably should have brought up and, you know, put a stop to it or, you know, made efforts to have the road closed or brought it up to people that were responsible for for something like that. There was a second report, as I mentioned, there was the U.S. Department of Labor investigation. And as a result of the labor investigation, they concluded that the engineer of record failed to recognize the potential for collapse and imminent danger when inspecting the bridge a few hours before. And the crack should have initiated a reshore plan immediately. And the collapse occurred while contractors were retensioning tendons at the direction of the engineer of record. These cracks occurred due to deficient structural design that Nicole had mentioned and we talked about a little bit before. The cracks were growing in size daily and the engineer of record was notified of this. 
but since he couldn't replicate them in his calculations and wasn't sure what was causing them, he didn't think they were a safety concern. But I mean, if, if you have cracks that are fairly significant in your in your bridge that are occurring as, as you construct a bridge, they probably are are a safety concern. I've been here before. I do feel for him a little bit. The contractor comes and says, hey, I've got this problem. And he gives you all this information. You start going down the road of troubleshooting. You look at the design and you check some things and you ask more questions and you test some things and you ask more questions and, you know, you go through that process. But sometimes you get to a point where you're like, I kind of don't really know what's going on here. And and sometimes, usually that means we need to do some type of destructive testing, which basically means you cut out pipe and you take it apart and you look at the inside of it for the most part, uh, if we're talking about a piping application. But I, I've definitely been here where I've been trying to troubleshoot a problem and I can't quite recreate it and I, I'm struggling to figure out what exactly is going on. And, you know, this is also happening over the span of five days at most. So the, the cracks are occurring, the engineer's notified, he goes to site and then the bridge collapses. So... Yeah, his design was wrong. And yeah, he didn't have it peer-reviewed. And he made a ton of mistakes along the way. But this collapse also kind of happened over a pretty short period of time. Yeah, it's certainly a tricky situation to be in, especially in that that short time period, because there's time and money and project schedules and a whole host of factors involved in trying to make the right decision for, you know, in in this case, cracking or, you know, other project issues that that do come up. So yeah, he's, he's he's in a pretty tricky spot here. I think the other thing too to mention is he's not local. So this bridge is in Miami and he's in a different part of Florida and and he's not, you know, he's still in Florida. He's a couple hours away, but he's not just down the street. I can be over there in five minutes. He's, he's a little bit further away. So it does make it a little bit tricky for him to be on site and to communicate and to get information back from, um, from the contractor. Honestly, I've worked on lots of projects out of town and until I go to site that first time and meet everybody face to face, I do find communication to be a bit challenging because everybody's just an email address. And so until you go to site and you meet someone in person, then you start to build that relationship where you can communicate a little bit better or sometimes a lot better. And, and online meetings have definitely helped with that, but it's still interesting. I like to go to site earlier on in the project when they're out of town, if I can, so just so I can meet everybody because it makes the whole process way simpler. Yeah, and he's also at a disadvantage here being out of town for, you know, kind of the visual inspection that he would do for, you know, just kind of the walking around to look at stuff. He's relying on people on site that are there to take the right pictures um, from the right perspective or to describe things properly, where if he was, like Nicole said, you know, five minutes away or, you know, fairly close to this project, he can pop over and he can look at whatever he wants and, you know, he can interpret that with his own eyes instead of having to rely on, on somebody else to send him pictures or video or you know, report or talk to him on the phone about what they're seeing on site. Yeah. And, and I do want to say, we're not giving him a pass. We're not saying he's not responsible. We're just trying to shed some light on some of, uh, just trying to shed some light on the bigger picture and all of the things that were going on. This collapse was still completely preventable. The people who died did not need to die. It was tragic. Shouldn't have happened. But the, I shouldn't say any buts because there's not, again, I'm not trying to make excuses, but it's just the engineer is just a person. He's a person and no one is infallible. Additional points that the U.S. Department of Labor investigation brought up were that the independent construction engineer and the inspector failed to recognize the danger of the cracks and exercise their own independent professional judgment to sound the alarm. So we've talked about this a number of times already today that lots of people on the project were able to recognize that there was a danger and alert the correct people that there needed to be something done about this. 
The contractor also deferred the decision on what to do about the cracks in the bridge to the engineer of record, rather than ex exercising their own professional judgment as well. And the evaluation of cracks and remediation work was not part of the original design and therefore should have been subject to peer review. So there's a lot of things that are that are really working against this bridge collapsing, or I guess working in favor of this bridge collapsing. The peer review engineer didn't check the structural integrity of the bridge during different construction stages and only reviewed the structure in its final stage when all the segments would be installed and complete. So the trust that failed was a non-redundant member, which the engineer of record should have known. Failure of this trust or similar other trusses could have caused the bridge to collapse, which the engineer of record also should have known. These two factors further support the notion that the engineer should have closed the roadway and installed shoring under the bridge until it could be fixed. So two really good reports, two different lists of recommendations. The National Transportation Safety Board focused a lot more on the design and the construction process, and the U.S. Department of Labor focused a lot more on the people side of it, the, the procedures that were not done the different steps that could have been taken to mitigate this risk, which I, which I just think is interesting because they're both investigating the same thing and they kind of came up with different lists of, of findings. So the National Transportation Safety Board also put a list of recommendations to the following groups. So these were directed at the Federal Highway Administration, the Florida Department of Transportation, the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, and the Bridge Engineering Firm. They recommended that this group develop a requirement for concrete bridge structures to be designed with more reasonable estimates related to shear capacity and clamping forces. They wanted to strengthen the requirements and verification of qualified peer review, including a pre-qualification letter, which essentially means that you need to register who your peer review is going to be done by and allow the authority having jurisdiction to review that, that submission and potentially rejected if they don't think that that person is properly qualified for the project they're reviewing. They wanted to revise local agreements to close the bridge and road underneath a bridge at the first site of structural cracks. The Florida Department of Transportation personnel should monitor and inspect all bridge projects with an uncommon design, which is what we had here. And they wanted to add a section in the structural design guide on redundancy in uncommon bridge designs. So, you know, I think, again, going back to the bridge engineer, he's trying some new concepts that he hasn't done before. And yes, he didn't do well, but it's also uncharted territory to an extent. And so I think, you know, I think the changes that were recommended, fingers crossed, they all were implemented, are really, really good. And I think they're going to prevent this type of thing from happening again. Yeah, but I, I would think if if this was the first time he tried some of these techniques, or it was an uncommon way to design a bridge that there would be more oversight and more engineering scrutiny that would go into a lot of the design just because it was untested or it was a new technique that they were using or you know they would have used increased safety factors because there were so many unknowns in this design process yeah that, i mean that's how i would have approached it i'm not i've not designed a bridge but that's how i approach new things or things i've never done before is i just put a ton of safety factor in because if there's a problem I'm the first person they call and I don't want to get that phone call. So I make sure that the design is as stringent, as, as strong as it can be. The other thing that I think is interesting about these types of failures, and, and I don't know the actual outcome of this, but I'm always interested when you see something like this happening, 
how many other bridge owners and contractors and designers out there are going back and double checking their calculations and their construction and their maintenance program because they don't want this to happen to them. And I always think that's a really interesting side product of these failures is that everyone else looks at them and says, I don't want to be that guy. And they go in and hopefully, well, hopefully everyone did a thorough review and found nothing. In reality, some people checked some stuff, found some issues, and hopefully they corrected them. So, you know, maybe this bridge collapse, as tragic and preventable as it was, prevented some other collapses from happening, which silver lining, I guess. As a result of the bridge collapse, the roadway that it was over top of was closed until March 24th while they cleared the area and performed a full investigation. On May 6, 2020, the Florida Department of Transportation said they planned to rebuild the bridge, but with input from the National Transportation Safety Board this time, which seems like a really good idea. Demolition of the old bridge started in September of 2021. From there, they're going to resurvey the land and redesign or design a new bridge, which is expected to be completed in 2025. So there you have it, the University Pedestrian Bridge Collapse in Florida, a completely preventable collapse not only from the original design state, but by several parties during construction. Yes, the engineer of record was at fault for the original design mistake and not recognizing the significance of the cracks, but everyone else had blood on their hands too for not stepping up and making their own judgment calls based on what was occurring on site. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode for another engineering marvel, because it's going to be our 50th episode. Wow. That's super exciting. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, 50. I can't believe we're at 50. This is so exciting. We're going to tell you all about the James Webb Space Telescope, which is one that Brian has wanted to talk about for a while. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.